Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? I am doing great. How are you, Randy? Oh, I'm so glad to hear you're doing great. I'm doing good now. I've had a couple, I've had a pretty eventful last two weeks. I've heard a little about it. Yeah. Bunch of Facebook hackers working for Mark Zuckerberg took over my Facebook page. And, you know, a lot of people know I have a bum liver. So this is this is no secret that I go back to the Mayo Clinic every couple yeah. of years. So I'm at the Mayo Clinic, and they're doing a new lube oil and filter on me and my liver. And I got a fight with Facebook the whole time I'm back there. It's like, you know what, folks? I'm over-medicated right now, and I could say <laughs> something really bad. <laughs> and my wife is hiding my computer. So I'm having my, yes, (laughs) when I, because when they go do these procedures, they run cameras down your throat and stuff. And so they put you to sleep when that happens. And so a lot of times I'm pretty rummy while I'm back there. And uh, my wife hides my computer and my phone. So my son, Matthew, is responding to all these people who are saying, hey, your Facebook page is act. Yes, we know. So that was, it'll be a week ago tomorrow, and we still don't have control of our Facebook account. Wow. Yeah. But I tell you what, they are making a lot of money, those hackers, because I can log in. They move all of us down to analyst. And if you have a business Facebook page, you know, the, the highest levels administrator. And so when they somehow crack the firewall, they move everyone else down to administrator. They change the multi-factor notifications of emails and stuff. So I can go in and look at what they're doing. The video, they, the first video they posted has already made $13,000 of ad revenue. The and video this they is, posted? They posted. It's so they about, posted a, a video to your account? Yep. So I have no control over this. So some some man or woman from Thailand posts this video, and I've never been able to monetize any of my videos. So when you go into my insights and it says estimated revenue, it's always zero, 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 because we have firearms and knives and hunting and other offensive things in their mind. And the first video they posted, they're already up to $13,000 of revenue for their split. And usually it's like a 60-40 split with Facebook. So how many how many views are on that video? Millions. On your uh, channel? On my, on my channel. What's the video yeah. of? It's, a, it's some dudes pulling a shark out of the water. And it looks like a bad rerun of Jaws or something. And well, uh, this, this brings a couple of ideas to mind. Yeah. Number one, mm-hmm. if you can get their contact information, I think you should hire them. First, oh, for sure. Yeah. Because somehow they allowed your channel to be monetized, which you weren't able to do. Yeah. 
And Secondly, I, they're getting millions of views on your channel. Maybe, maybe you need some content ideas there to. Maybe well, you need to send Marcus and Dale shark fishing. Maybe, but I went and looked as an analyst. I can go look at where the views come from. Uh, the like ninety-eight percent of the views are coming from Asia, uh, mostly Southeast Asia, and so. I'm trying to figure out who is spending money on these videos because yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to wonder, have they also hacked somebody's ad account? Because mm -hmm. if you have a Facebook business page, you can go and buy ads. And are there great big ad accounts where, you know, a few thousand here, a few thousand there, that's just a rounding error in the budget where no one notices it. And they're directing all those ads to their videos. Because it's not going into my account. I checked my bank accounts and I <laughs> got excited at first and I realized it was a negative in front of it. That meant that I had spent that much. Yeah. So so that was exciting for the last wow. week. It, it's still ongoing. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, a member of the Montana congressional delegation, one of their staffers, called me just before we got on this. I... I listen to the message uh i'm gonna call him back later who knows maybe maybe this senator will be given the heart get <laughs> yesterday i'm all fired up so I, I did an instagram live which is kind of ironic right you get on a platform owned by facebook <laughs> to complain about facebook yeah. uh but I was all fired up i'm like i'm gonna read them the right act and then on the way here i see a guy He's riding a bicycle down the road. His left leg, he doesn't have a leg below the knee. I'm like, man, that guy is after it. You know, this this is an example of making the best of a bad situation. <laughs> so he's driving a bicycle, and he's got only his right foot on the pedal. And he, in his right hand, he's got a coffee that he's drinking while he's riding his bicycle down the sidewalk. I'm like, you know what? This guy needs to be the 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 meme of you know when given lemon to make lemonade <laughs> multitasking. So I come to the office here to do that live event, and I'm like, you know, Randy, if if Facebook jacking your Facebook page is the worst thing that happens to you this year, it's probably going to be a pretty good year. And that, that guy got me. Just seeing that guy got me in a upbeat mood. So. I talked about it on the Facebook Live, and I, I hope I don't get in trouble for this because I, it's kind of a grade school thing you used to do that is an adult statement on words. Uh, you know, you used to go and give the, – there was always that snotty kid on the playground that would pick on – you know, come and flick your ear or hit you with a slush ball or something. <laughs> and when you got the chance, you ran up there and you grabbed him by the undie britches and you lifted him up and gave him a double wedgie or something. And uh, so I said I'd like to do that to any of the leadership of – of uh facebook i want to give them a wedgie uh i don't know if that's uh, you know that's that's like a figure of speech yeah. but i'm probably going to get investigated by the you know the powers to be for threatening to give mark zuckerberg a wedgie or something but uh <laughs> and then i went on to talk about how i wish facebook was a tangible physical object so i could throw it up in the air and we could shoot them with shotguns, you know, exactly. kind of like treat them as clay pigeons or something. Then I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm headed even further uh, down. The 
I'm I'm probably going to have the law here shaking me down any moment. moment yeah, uh, the you're result. bringing violence and guns into it. Yeah. So anyhow, that when you sorry, but that's seven minutes of you asking me how's it going. Well, there's seven minutes worth of content right there. That's, <laughs> tell you what, uh, <laughs> Taiwan companies posting shark videos on your Facebook account and making thirteen thousand dollars. I mean, you got my wheels yeah. spinning. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Yeah. I I don't know what to do. I still don't have control of my account. And here's the funny part: we report all this to Facebook, so there you, you establish it's called the ticket number, and they want this and this and this and this. So RJ, my operations guy, he's providing them everything they need, and I'm like, well, why don't you ask the same of these? dudes over here you know at this university in the philippines why don't you ask them to verify don't ever hear back from them yep that's what i was wondering how how can you not get into your own account but somebody else was able to get in monetize it make a whole bunch of money and yeah so and when i did that live video yesterday the number of other people who've had this happen to them i was surprised i got a ton of emails yesterday saying hey you know, I own this company, and they had control of our page for three months. I'm like, holy cow. And they're like, finally, we, we pretty much just gave up. And uh, so I've always said, blow up your Facebook. There's an old John Prine song called Blow Up Your TV. <laughs> don't, ha- don't have your kids listen to that song because it's about him in a strip club in Montreal. Uh and he asks one of the gals there, you know, you seem awful happy. What's the secret to happiness? She's like, blow up your TV. <laughs> so this was in the, this is a song from the 1970s. Uh, and so I've always said, blow up your Facebook. You'll be a lot happier. And the only reason I have Facebook, you know how it is in our business, Corey. Yep. Sponsors expect you to have all these platforms and share posts here and do this. Because if I could, I'm so bad at Facebook and Instagram. I have such little interest in it. I, I have a firm that does it out of Minneapolis. I, I, I don't even know half the time what I'm doing when I'm out there. So huh. I could blow you it sure up. That firm isn't taking advantage and posting videos of sharks on your account. Well, you know, I I've been talking to them. They <laughs> they seem pretty frantic. Uh, <laughs> And if they're making that kind of money, they're doing a really good job of hiding it because uh, <laughs> the partner in charge lives a pretty frugal life. But I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyhow, the, the the moral of that story is, folks, blow up your Facebook. Yeah. Blow it up. But yeah. not your Instagram that's owned by Facebook. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how I can get even with them by doing something on Instagram. <laughs> I'm thinking if I did this really viral video, like hair on fire video on Instagram, how funny would it be if a really popular viral video on Instagram was talking about what a bunch of corrupt operation they allow <laughs> they allow to happen over there on Facebook. Uh, so yeah. or we need a we need a meme of someone giving Mark Zuckerberg a wedgie. <laughs> I'm sure after this episode airs, somebody's going to be sending in a picture or a drawing. There's that uh, wild country comics guy on Instagram that. Oh he seems, yeah, he seems yeah. to always have a cartoon of you. 
James, I, I need to reach out to him. He's from Maine. Hey, James, do me a do me a comic with me giving Mark Zuckerberg a wedgie. <laughs> you know. Or the other thing, remember how you'd grab someone, you'd put them in the headlock and you'd rub your knuckles on their head? Yeah. And uh what do we call that a uh, noogie? Noogie. Yeah, that's a three stooges noogie. I was going to talk about that, but I thought, boy, that's getting to the border of maybe threatening violence. So I, (laughs) as I started to talk about it, I, I crossed that off the list, but that's probably good. And you and I come from logging families. So we know that when things really got serious, it wasn't usually solved by just wedgies and noogies. (laughs) Right. It was like, let's go on, let's go out back here. Let's go on the Jerry yeah. Springer show. Yeah. Take care of this. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about elk hunting. This is called elk talk, not Facebook talk or wedgie talk. <laughs> so yeah, last time we talked, there were two topics that came up in the emails we got. One is about your shed hunting. Uh, ant- oh, do you call it shed hunting or do you call it antler hunting? Or you know, collecting or picking or what? what's the proper term? When I was growing up, all the loggers and the locals called it horn hunting. Okay. But, Hmm. you know, several of us posted that when we first, you know, when Instagram became popular and we were like going out horn hunting for today. And so many people (laughs) corrected us and said they aren't (laughs) horns. They shed them every year. They're antlers. And I'm like, you know, we understand that they shed them every year. We're out picking them up. So anyway, it's kind of, it's morphed from horn hunting to shed hunting and i'm sure that with the way the woke generation and yeah. all political correctness will probably be antler gathering soon or there you go yeah, yeah. depriving the landscape of recyclable nutrients that's <laughs> oh. <laughs> i knew i got you on that Let's, one you're like Okay. We already talked about that question. All right. Here's a question. It kind uh, it kind of relates to that. And the other topic people brought up, a lot of comments about what they would do if they were king for a day. Because we, uh-huh. we had our king for the day uh, comments last episode. Yeah. Uh, there were some interesting comments. But uh, one of the things that I've noticed as... Horn hunting. I'm going to use horn hunting. That just sounds cooler. Yeah. Than antler collecting or whatever. So, <laughs> folks, don't send us emails if we call it horn hunting. All right. That's what Corey grew up calling it. That's what we're going to call it here. If you don't like that, go listen to another podcast. Uh, <laughs> That's one way to chase them off, Randy. <laughs> I told you, I be careful, Corey. I can ruin all of our years of work in a half-hour session. But <laughs> So some of the questions, not just recently, but over the past six months, because of how crowded the woods were last year, yeah. there's a lot of questions about public land etiquette. Is there an etiquette that comes into place with horn hunting? There is, yeah. And unfortunately, you know, horn hunters, antler hunters, shed hunters, they're uh, they're typically hunters. I mean, I, I yeah. don't run into a whole lot of people out shed hunting that, you know, aren't hunters. Yeah. And for whatever reason, any ethics that they might have had during hunting season go out the window <laughs> when, they, when they start shed hunting. It, it's, uh, 
I think it's uh, far worse than hunting when it comes to ethics. Uh, people are trying to be the first ones into your area, you know, and, and you talk about a coy group of individuals. Shed hunters don't even talk about what state they're in, you know, if they're, mm-hmm. if they're smart, because it's pretty easy with uh, a little bit of Google Earth and a couple of pictures to put two and two together and know what hillside they're standing on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of tricks that I could teach people about that. But, you know, when, when you have somebody, when you take somebody shed hunting into your area, it's just an unwritten rule that they don't go back there ever. They right. don't mention <laughs> it. They don't mention where they were. They don't mention who they were with. Because mm-hmm. it is, you know, it's such a limited resource and the competition is just so fierce. So if you find a good spot that's got some antler in it, you keep it secret. And yeah. it's becoming impossible to go and pick up antlers without seeing boot prints. And the only reason we're really? still picking up antlers is because there's so many people pushing the elk around that the elk get scattered. They end up dropping an antler here and three miles later they drop the other side and you know, you're up in snow and it's just, it's when I was doing it 25 years ago, we would wait until April 15th before we even started going out just so that we could make sure all the elk had dropped. They weren't still in there. The antlers were just laying on the hillside. And then we'd go in there and, you know, hit a ridge or a hillside and find a pile of antlers. Now we go out and hike 11 miles in a day to find two antlers that were 11 miles apart. And so it's, you know, that whole ethics of secrecy is huge. And then, you know, I think when it comes to shed hunting, there is no respect for someone else's areas. Um, people will try to find successful shed hunters and follow their vehicle or notice where they're parked and make yeah. note of it and go in there the next year or go in there and pick up what's left. And <laughs> yeah, which is why a lot of states have regulations now, you know, and, Montana and uh, Wyoming, Nevada, you know, there's there's opening days in some of those states right. and they wait mm-hmm. until May 1st just so the elk are off of their winter grounds. Uh, you know, it doesn't work because all it does is those same people that don't have the ethics when it comes to shed hunting don't care about rules. So the people yeah. who obey the rules stand back and let everybody pick up all the antlers and then May 1st they go in there and they're like, wow, the elk must not have been here this year because there's no antlers. <laughs> yeah uh that's frustrating yeah Hmm. so spinning that then to some of the questions we had about uh one guy mentioned hey i was sitting in a blind in arizona elk hunting some dudes on atvs came up and started spinning donuts out in front of me and i stuck my head out and he used uh, on keyboards, you kind of, you know, you put a whole bunch of weird characters that make no sense. <laughs> the Qbert language? Yeah, I, I think that meant he told them, hey, get out of here. You're going to get a blankety-blank wedgie or noogie. <laughs> uh, and he, his question was, do you think that we need to start educating people more about the ethics of public land interactions in general? And I think the easy answer is yes. Uh, you always hope that people just use common sense. Yeah. But I wonder if a lot of the new people that just this is their first year or two out doing this stuff, whether it's hunting or hiking or berry picking or horn hunting, are they just not 
familiar with what the ethics are or the etiquette is. And so they do stuff and they don't really know versus how many of them are like, yeah, I know I'm being a jerk, but I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there is quite a bit of that. Yeah. But, you know, and I, I don't think it's so much the new people. I think, you know, a lot of the new people are learning from someone else uh, yeah. or they're timid enough that they, you know, if they do something, it's not to a, a level where you know that it's on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, so much of what I see is is from seasoned people who are just greedy and will uh, stop it at no expense to – get what they want, pick up a couple antlers. Yeah. Well, we run into the same thing with camps. You know, I, there's kind of two things to this is you hike into a basin three miles, you set up a camp somewhere and someone sets up camp 300 yards away from you. It's like, uh, hello, (laughs) you saw our camp here in this opening. Uh, there's the entire rest of the mountain range here. Yeah, they kind of give you the, what are you going to do about it yes, look? It's free country. And then <laughs> I've also pulled up to really popular trailheads. Trailheads where you know every day there's at least five vehicles. And I've had people put their wall tent right in the middle of the trail. Where I had to walk around their wall tent to use the main trail that goes back and, you know, breaks into five different trails once you get back there. And it's like, do you think that that's the right thing to do? You somehow that's going to, maybe it did bluff some people to yeah. not go in there. For me, that's just like, all right, I'm going to walk right through your camp, and I'm going to make sure tomorrow when I come through, I'm going to come through at about 2 in the morning. I'm probably going to sit out there and rev up my truck and wake your sorry butt out of your bed. Uh, so there's, I just use those as examples. There's how, you know, there's as many examples as there are opportunities for people to be buttheads. Yeah. Uh, but for me, it's, you know, I always use the theory, if someone's here before me, if I hike in and I see somebody is there, it's like, all right, you beat me to it. Good for you. I hope you get one. And I go find my other place and resolve that the next morning, I'm going to get the mattress off my back a little earlier. <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know. It's, I think with the number of outdoor users, we're going to see more and more of this. And I know on my platforms, I'm going to be trying to talk about it more. When we encounter these situations out in the field, talk about, hey, you know, this is the situation. Here's, here's the expected etiquette. If you don't know this, now you do, or if you're not doing this, hey, think about the other people out here and quit being selfish. Yeah. Because, uh, so I just wondered if shed hunting, had, horn hunting had the same issue. Yeah. No, there was a, a guy we know packed in last year. And I mean, we're going remote. This isn't like we're driving an ATV and glassing from it and spotting an antler and going and picking it up. This is, yeah. you know, we're going in seven eight miles bivy hunting and spending wow. two or three days to pick up enough antlers to pack out on a backpack and i haven't it's been probably gosh close to 10 years since i've had a day where i had to actually leave antlers like i found too many that i couldn't pack out mm-hmm. and those days are just becoming more and more rare but we were in last year we went into a spot and we were 
gosh, a good eight miles in there. And about five miles in, there's a drainage that we know some people shed hunt. Well, the guy was shed hunting it, and he had taken a little raft or something down to cross the creek there and had gone across and then came back to where his camp was. And I don't remember if the next day he stayed on that side or if he woke up the next morning, but somebody came and stole his raft. Oh, man. And, you know, I just, I don't understand, you're back in five miles somewhere, and and shed hunters are the last people that you want to steal something from, because obviously if they're willing to do anything to (laughs) get an antler, it's not going to be a clean confrontation. But I couldn't imagine stealing a raft five miles back in somewhere and packing it out, knowing that there's somebody up on a ridge with binoculars watching, mm-hmm. and the chance that you get caught, it's probably not just going to get turned into the local police. There's probably going to be a need for a raft to find that person <laughs> down the river somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's, hmm. I think it's just society in general, just losing, yeah. losing a lot of respect <clears throat> for others. Yeah, and I'm sure you get tired of me saying it in the audience that I have gets tired of me saying it, but we in the hunting space are a cross section of our bigger society. Yeah. So we're, we're going to have some of the same putzes that society has. And, uh, unfortunately most of the regulations and rules we have, whether it's hunting or, you know, means of take or, or antler collecting, horn hunting, it's because of the, you know, one to five percent who just can't operate in a responsible manner. Yep. So the other ninety-five percent got to modify their behavior. Yep. Uh, one of the listeners asked the question: With twenty twenty-one coming off one of the worst droughts ever in 2020 and 2021 being forecast to be the same is that impacting it's a couple they had a couple questions is that impacting what dates we are planning to hunt this year or how we plan to hunt and is there anything hunters can do to help wildlife during a drought phase hmm that's great questions I think yes, uh, you know, and I, I've learned the hard way. I applied for Utah on one of the worst drought years, and everybody said, "Turn your tag back in. This isn't the year to have the tag." And stubborn me, excited to draw a tag, thought, "Listen, just because there's a shortage of water, there's not a shortage of elk. There's still going to be as many elk there. They're still going to bugle and breed and rut." So, you know, my thought was they'll be more concentrated and. It'll be yeah. like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> well, here I am now, uh, eight or nine years later, after going on that hunt, still wishing I would have turned that tag back in because <laughs> it is tough hunting, on a, especially on a severe drought year. Uh, it does concentrate yeah. the animals, which makes it harder to find them. Uh, yeah. The rut still happens, but it's very subdued. Uh, There's just a lot of negatives that that can happen during a severe drought. And we're talking, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, I think they're fairly used to drought conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think what we're looking at, you know, last year, this year so far, it's a pretty severe drought. And I think it's going to have some effect. 
when yeah. we get into states, you know, like uh, Colorado and Idaho and Montana and Wyoming, drought's usually not a topic that comes up. But I saw something the other day that said this is the driest year in the Northwest on record in I forget how many years at this point. Um, just the snowpack and the way that it melted off, and they're really yeah. concerned about water, even in the mountain states. So yeah. definitely we, something uh, to be aware of. We had a super mild winter here in Montana, and uh, yeah, we you know some it, you look at the snowtail maps, and some places we had good snow, other places. Uh, and if we don't get our normal, this is the time of year we get those really wet snows that stay up there longer in the yeah. mountains. We get rain in the valley, snow in the mountain. If we don't get some of that in April and May, we're going to be really in a bad way in Montana this year. Yep. Because last year was nothing to get real excited about in terms of moisture. Uh, and so you go into a year, you're probably a little drier than normal. And then you get a low snowpack, and then if we don't get our spring moisture, uh, could be a tough year, even as far north as Montana. So, yeah. But uh, does does that change what dates you hunt or anything like that? Well, I think it it might not change, but it definitely comes into play. You know, if I'm hunting say Utah that opens on what August 19th 17th yeah. something like that opens early on a drought year that might be really good hunting because you're going to be sitting water that early anyway elk are going to be very dependent upon water uh, they're going to be very patternable and so I think on a drought year that's the time to sit water and that's yeah. going to be your best bet anyway as far as a strategy uh, and so I think, you know, it, it comes into play that, hey, this would be a great year to to uh, hunt that early season over-the-counter tag in Utah or, you know, any state that opens early, water is going to be productive. You get into Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, some of the Rocky Mountain states, and water's not a concern. Yeah, some of the water sources are dried up, but there's water anywhere yeah. in the mountains you're going to find a water source in any mountain in in those mountain states and so finding water isn't a big deal the elk might have to change their patterns a little bit to uh, to go to water based on where they might normally get water uh, so it doesn't really affect when i hunt i think the thing that that would concern me the most in those states is the fire danger and the possibility of fires in your area, road closures in your area, area closures in your unit, you know, things like that that could put a, a huge damper on your hunt. So making sure that you have plenty of backup ideas for sure. Yeah. And for me in the northern states where, like you say, you get higher elevation, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, it's not the of the presence of water that drought causes a problem with because there's still plenty of it. It's what it does to the forage and how the historical areas that elk have used to start getting that winter fat on, they have to shift and use other areas. And sometimes I feel like I'm hunting a completely new place that I've never been to before. Yeah. And I'm talking about places in my backyard of Montana. Uh, it's like, where did the elk go? They're always here in, you know, late August. Nope, not this year. Well, you know, it's 
it's <laughs> it's really dry or you know sometimes the the public land grazers ask for permission to uh, move on to an allotment that normally had been rotated so some of my projections of where elk will be based on rotation of grazing allotment usage each year's changes so if you're hunting something that is related to a food pattern expect big changes in elk behavior in a drought year is that that's been uh, i say that in the northern states that's been my experience anyhow that they're going to be focused they're going to they're not going to be as dispersed across the landscape because the quality forage is no longer dispersed across the landscape. The quality forage that they're looking for is more isolated. So if you can find it, you're going to find higher densities of elk in those areas, but it's harder to locate elk. Yep. That's, that's been my experience. And that's, you know, that advice is probably worth what somebody paid for. <laughs> No, and it, you know, you look at, we talked about shed hunting and how the, the winter's a little different this year. You know, we got snow, but it was a a weird timing on the snow and the, the weather this spring has been, we, we haven't got those rains like you were talking about and the wet snows, it's just turned dry. And what I've noticed is on those south faces, they're Mm -hmm. exposed to 6,500 feet right now. And Mm. typically, you know, we're looking at 5,500 feet, 5,600 feet, somewhere in there. And so the Mm. the south slopes are way more exposed. On the backside, there's deeper snow. The north slopes have, uh, the north-facing slopes have even deeper snow than what they might have had last year. But the elk are moving out earlier. And whether it's from pressure, every single place that I've been so far this spring, and I've been on five shed hunts, every single one of them, I have seen fresh wolf tracks from that day when I'm in there. Wow. And these are, you know, mm. 20 miles apart, aerial miles. So it's not the same wolves. Uh, there's right. wolves that are pushing them continually. I noticed the one, I know it was wolves that pushed the elk out of their winter grounds over the top, down the backside into a completely different drainage um, that I don't think they normally would have went to. And then you look at the cows. The cows are gone from the winter grounds right now over here. They're just where you typically see huge herds of cows right now, they've dispersed and they're already in their small little groups of six or eight cows, which I really think is going to affect where they're going to spend their summer, which is Mm -hmm. where the bulls are going to come and find them in the rut. So I, I think that the elk, from what I'm seeing right now, I would predict the elk are going to be a little more spread out this year. They're going to be in smaller groups. Uh, they might be at a little higher elevation than what they normally would be. You know, maybe where you found the rut last year, it's going to be up the canyon or up the ridge, uh, mm-hmm. 500 more feet or 1,000 more feet. Uh, you know, there's just a, a lot of dynamics and variables this year that are coming into play that are going to probably have an effect. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the other part of the question is what can hunters or their organizations do? And in some states, I know in Arizona, Arizona Game and Fish, along with a bunch of their conservation groups, you know, the RMEF being one of them, uh, are funding or paying to have water trucked out to these artificial guzzlers. Because those guzzlers, if you've ever seen one on the hillside, it's a great big metal apron that's got a plastic liner. And when it rains, that metal apron doesn't allow the moisture to go into the soil. It runs down using gravity into collection tanks. And then it 
has almost like in your toilet, it's got the float in it. And that keeps these small tanks filled that the wildlife uses. Well, right now, some of those are so dry that there's no water that collected last year. So they're going out and actually filling some of those big holding tanks. So you can help with that. Either yeah. your time your time or your money. Longer term, if the patterns we read about are going to prevail where we're going to be hotter and drier in the future, one of the things we got to think about is the pinion juniper progression on mm. the landscape and what that has done to surface water. You talk to pretty much any ecologist, any range specialist, and they will tell you one of the biggest water hogs on the landscape is the pinion juniper communities that have expanded greatly because of fire suppression, because of a whole bunch of other things. And those pinion juniper complexes are having a, an impact on how much surface water there is for wildlife. And yep. a lot of people probably don't think of it in that context, but we're going to have to start managing pinion juniper aggressively for a multitude of reasons. Uh, wa surface water, uh, even groundwater probably to some degree, being an important part of that. And uh, so if you're wondering what you can do, get involved in those projects, advocate to your agencies or your land managers that you want to see more of this taken care of, more of this done, restored more to what it was before we started suppressing fire to the degree that we do. And uh, that, that does a lot of things for wildlife. Right now, Arizona's embarking on a huge project doing this. Uh, it's like 250,000 acres. They're going to mechanically treat a lot of it to get rid of pinion. It's mostly getting rid of pinion juniper. And they're trying to restore traditional grasslands. And when you talk to their scientists, what that will do for birds, I mean, we're talking like songbirds and, and rodents and everything else, in addition to putting more water on the landscape, is quite remarkable. So we're... Uh, I'm interested to see how that turns out. My crew went down and filmed the start of that project last summer. And each year we're going to go down and film more of it to say, here's the before and the after. And uh, those those are things that hunters can be doing to improve the landscape during these drought years. Because it, most of our landscapes, you know, when, when we're having really great weather years or lots of moisture, can support lots of elk, can support, you know, a lot of whatever it's when you start getting on the margins of the weather cycles where the marginal habitat which a lot of our habitat has become marginal because it doesn't get managed that's when you really see the amplified effects of drought predation you know whatever it is so yeah. i i would uh, ask people to go do those kind of things and I, for, I forget the numbers, you know, talking about the pinion junipers, because when we went out for the hunt of a lifetime hunt that we do every year, uh, two years ago, I was concerned because I'm seeing all these pinion junipers that are just literally chainsawed down and laying on the ground, the whole mountainside cut down, like clear cut, and all the, you know, the they didn't do anything with it. They didn't cut it up. They didn't pile it to be burned. And so, you know, we started asking what was going on and yeah, it's for, for more water for the, uh, 
the livestock and the the cattle and the ranchers and everything out in that area. And I forget the number, but it was an astronomical number of the output from just the little streams and the springs in that area, how much the uh, those pinion junipers drew out of groundwater. It was just incredible. And to be able to cut all those down and, and kill them so that they aren't a drain on that resource uh, allowed that resource to be used up by other things that needed it. And, you know, here we are, I think, close to three years later now, and they've done that in multiple areas out there. And, you know, there isn't, I've noticed a difference just from year to year in the amount of water coming down some of those little mountain streams that you have to cross to get up into hunting areas. And it's, uh, it's pretty significant, yeah. but the, uh, the effort required to do something like that's pretty significant too. So I'm sure there yeah. are volunteer opportunities yeah and if you want to read the consequences of all this uh i have a study that i have bookmarked that i go out and read often uh it's uh called uh, you go to sciencedirect.com and this study is rangeland ecology and management uh volume seven issue one from january 2017 and it's the pinion and juniper encroachment into sagebrush ecosystems and the impacts on the distribution and survival of greater sage grouse. And what it's, uh, the conclusion is that these pinion juniper encroachments are having a huge impact on our sage land communities, which used to be very big, large communities, not, uh, not disrupted by all these pinion juniper pinion juniper increases the likelihood of predation uh it, it changes the whole fire cycle uh often at times brings with it cheatgrass which uh there's just a whole list of things it's a really really interesting study to read uh, about what's going on out there um, but if anyone wants to go out there um you just uh, i don't know what you would google uh science direct and probably pinion juniper encroachment uh did show up but I, I like i don't have enough to do but those kind of studies are things <laughs> that i find fascinating um yeah. and sometimes they change my mind on things you know sometimes i read something that's like oh <laughs> that's completely different than what i thought it was <laughs> uh but i'm i'm inclined to rely on the scientist rather than the dude down at the coffee shop or the bar um so. really yeah, but or, or if I could get my Facebook page back, I guess maybe I could have some of the Facebook experts tell me <laughs> how it is. But uh, <laughs> uh, so those are things that I think uh, people could do. Uh, we can't change the weather, uh, but we can help the landscape and and help those who are less adaptable uh, to because let's face it, the human. The human condition or the human word of progress certainly has pushed the wild things to the fringes of their their habitat. So we got to yep. do what we can to help out. Totally. So, uh, I'm not going to talk about this because we got so many emails about it. And <laughs> so we aren't going to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just going to tell all of you who sent the email saying, I want to volunteer to be the amateur team on Corey's Destination. Uh, I, I almost say we probably shouldn't have put that out there because I think some people took it as, 
an invitation that somehow you were serious about that. There was definitely a uh, a call for applications that was perceived by many listeners, and we received <laughs> many applications to be that group. And yeah. you know what? I think it's a great idea. I I'm not yeah. I'm not saying that we aren't going to do that at some point because. Uh, I think it's great. You know, I think we could find some newer hunters that uh, are maybe in the hunting industry, but just haven't hunted elk a lot and get them involved. But I think it'd be really cool to pick someone from our uh, followers or, or listeners to be involved in it. You know, someone new that's not been successful yet, you know, probably not this year, just because we've got to get the whole project and get the platform yeah. ironed out and all that. But I could see in the in the future, maybe trying to do something like that. Yeah. Well, so hold the, hold the applications the, for now. Yeah. I'll leave that up to you, but I just wanted people to know that we did get all of your emails and we're not ignoring them. It's just that I don't think we realized that there would be this perceived idea <laughs> that this was a call <laughs> for applicant. Uh, oh, well, teach us, huh? Yeah, that's right. So, um, a couple questions came up, and I'd probably send people to the University of Elk Hunting course for that more gory details on this and the stuff that you and I are, have committed that we're going to do more of this summer, add more content. But uh, this one person who wrote kind of summarizes it best. Uh, it says, uh, I love the way that you explained your elk calendar. What are the standard date ranges of these five seasons you always talk about? How much can they change? What changes them, et cetera? Um, and I think the person is referring to how I need to make things simple. So I can't think of, I can't process more than five concepts in one bigger picture. So I broke my, my elk hunting calendar. Is, it's not a human calendar. It doesn't have August, September, October, November, December. It has early season, pre-rut, peak-rut, post-rut, late season. And the person is asking, what are the standard date ranges of those five seasons? And there is no standard. And it's not like they flip the calendar. They get up in the morning and say, hey, boys, just so everyone knows, today is September 11th. This means that it's peak-rut. Time to you go. Know, Yesterday was pre-rut. Today's peak rut. It, it doesn't happen that quickly. And for me, I use this because each of these five periods, the elk have a different need in that period. So when they're in an early season pattern, which I always say is before September 1st, we aren't hunting that. I mean, it's usually the early archery seasons you're talking about, but the elk are on a feed pattern then. And so they're going to be in certain locations where the best feed on the landscape is in August. Well, that's going to be completely different than where you find them in late November for a couple of reasons. One, they're no longer looking for food. They're looking for sanctuary because they hear all these gunshots going off and they want to live to see the next summer. So I use this to illustrate how elk move across the landscape in each of these periods that I mentioned to satisfy the need they have. And so the person's asking this, and for me, like I said, early season is usually August, 
when I say pre-rut, and this changes sometimes by elevation, changes by latitude uh, a day or two, but I usually say the first 10 days of September is kind of that pre-rut phase. And you've shot a lot of, lot of elk in that pre-rut phase with calling. So I don't want people to think that that's not a time to be out there hunting. And then I usually say, all right, peak rut comes somewhere September 10th through the 15th and runs till October 5th through the 10th, something like that. And then we go into the post rut that usually you can count on a pretty predictable post rut pattern, October 15th to the end of October. And then I have late season, which is November 1st and later. And the biggest difference between post-rut and late season is the bulls go from super tight sanctuaries, hardly moving at all, and being solo, to once you get into November, once they start getting in bachelor groups, that's when I start saying, okay, we're in a late season pattern. And because temperature, just the fact that they got to start putting some fat back on or taking in energy to get through the winter it causes them to be out or uh, later in the morning and earlier in the afternoon than what you'd see in the post drop phase so none of that is you know set hard and fast on the calendar but i think in your course i did a video a few years ago about that you but did yeah talking maybe. about it was more specific to the post rut and late season uh the yeah. rifle hunting um, but yeah you did break down showed all those calendar periods and talked about what the elk's needs are in each of yeah. those periods which is really important to understand because if you want to hunt elk any day of the year all you need to know is what their needs are you can find elk right. any day of the year if you understand what an elk's primary need is. And I think the way that you break that down, those needs, those calendar periods you talk about, Mm -hmm. uh, the needs change with those. That's almost the driver for those calendar periods. It's not some date of the year or some other event. It is what, when do the needs of the elk change? When do they change from water and feed to breeding? When do they change from breeding to sanctuary? You know, all these different things, understanding when they change and maybe why they change, uh, you can you can go out and find elk much easier just with that little bit of understanding. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, you're too bashful to make the plug, Corey. So I'm going to make the promo plug for you. If folks go out to your university course, they go to elk101.com and sign up and use promo code ELKTALK. Is that right? That's right. And you're going to give them a discount. $20 discount. Man. Yeah. So instead of $99, they get the University of Elk Hunting online course. And that's that's everything. That's all the information, every module, every chapter. That is discounts from some of our partners. That is uh, a discount in the Elk 101 store, uh, some other opportunities for members. And, and I would say based on the response over the last few weeks from Randy, you uh, you plugging it since I'm not comfortable mm-hmm. doing that. It's, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people who listen to you and, and respect your referral on that. So thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, and that uh, I always joke that my advice is worth what you pay for it, uh, <laughs> which because it's always free. But for you, for your course, the advice that they get there is going to be worth way more than what they pay for it. You need to raise your price. You know, I've, and 
many, I think we've talked about it before, but when I had it first uh, appraised by an online course group that they come in and tell you what the realistic rate is, I mean, it was, I think the range they gave me was $490 to $760 or something like that based on the amount of information and the level of of that information. Uh, but that's hmm. uh, that's where it wow. is. <clears throat> and All right. You look at huh? it. I filled up my truck the other day. It cost me $83 to fill up my truck one time. That's one wow. scouting trip. That's one shed hunting trip. That's one trip in September, October elk hunting. And we pay that and it stings a little bit, but we still do it. Uh, we go out and buy, you know, $400 pair of boots or a $1,000 bow or a $500 backpack. But we're forgetting about the most important item of gear we have and that's that's us and our knowledge and to invest $79 in that I think uh, yeah. it's money well spent I think it might whether it's worth it or not I think it's money well spent well I know you'll never do this but if you don't raise your price pretty soon I don't know if I'm going to be your friend wow <laughs> you're like well fine don't be my friend then i'm not raising my price let me make a list of pros and cons on each side of the table here (laughs) oh you're thinking well if i would have got that been that he knew it was that easy to get rid of you i would have had this discussion a long time ago Uh, so here's a question from a guy i'm not going to use the unit he he actually went so far as to say what unit he hunts uh, I'm, I'm trying to schedule my first elk hunt this year. A friend and I are looking into unit blank in Colorado, the thirdish week of September. A summary of this unit is elevation ranges from 6,000 to 8,500 with a lot of roads. I'm not sure that all of the roads are open, however. We selected this unit for the large percentage of public land and its high success rate. With this being a lower unit and more of a winter range, I'm concerned that this may not be the best choice for us. Any thoughts overall about lower elevations, large quantity of roads, and hunting the third week of September? So, (laughs) the first thing that enters my head when someone says this is winter range is... Is the high success rate in this unit because of the rifle hunts later in the year, possibly cow elk hunts later in the year? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be important to understand what those, uh, what, what the information is really telling you. Is it specific to archery season, you know, September 1st through September 30th, archery hunters, uh, is that a high success rate or is it the unit-wide success rate of the total number of hunters that hunt there from August whatever through December whatever? Uh, the other thing is, is when you say low winter range, you know, there, there's places we go and shed hunt that I would consider to be winter range where the elk are still at during the rut. Um, so they don't necessarily, you know, they, they don't migrate a whole long ways to get into that area in some places. I think the thing that concerns me the most from that email is low winter range coupled with lots of roads coupled yeah. with third week of September, which is the most popular week to archery <laughs> hunt, coupled with the fact that there's a muzzleloader season in Colorado, if that's the state you're referring to. Uh, yeah. that that would raise some red flags, that combination of those factors. 
Yeah. So to spin this a slightly different direction, but in the same vein, I'll tell you the factors I use when I'm selecting an over-the-counter unit in a place like Colorado or, you know, Wyoming, you draw the general tag. There's all a whole assortment of units you get to hunt. For me, I do usually first look at what are the success rates. Then uh, almost on equal terms of that is the bull-to-cow ratio and the cow-to-calf ratio. Because looking at those trends, if they're going up or at least staying steady, it tells you the health of the herd in overall numbers. And then the the other part is really subjective. As I look at, is this type of terrain the kind of terrain I like to hunt? There's some types of habitat and terrain I'm not that excited about hunting. If it's big, just vast expanses of dark timber, I just am not attracted to those areas. I don't have a lot of fun in there. So I might pass on a unit that has higher success rates if it's the type of terrain I don't enjoy hunting. And I know that's super subjective, but we're also here to have fun. <laughs> we're, we're here to do it in a place that we think our hunting style is best suited for. So that's why I might shy away from some units that meet every other criteria I have and go to a different unit that meet most of the criteria, but maybe not as well as the other unit. Yep. So, and that's that's not a science. That's just me saying this is this is what I like to do. This is how I like <laughs> to hunt. So, and for me, I'd say I I try to make sure there's at least forty to fifty percent public land in a unit when I go, but sometimes that can be a little deceiving because if it's just a complete checkerboard. That's really tough to hunt. Yeah. I don't care if it's 50% public land. If it's all checkerboard, that complicates my life. Whereas if it's 45% public land, but all that public land is consolidated in one big block, you know what? I can have a pretty darn good hunt in that if it's one great big block of public land. Yeah. So it's... There's no, <laughs> I, I don't want to say to this person's, try, trying to answer this person's question and make it applicable to other places and other situations. For me, there is no hard and fast rule about it. I This is a bit of a, of a shortcut. I go to Go Hunt on their Insider and Filtering 2.0, and those criteria I just listed, I can... <laughs> I can just say, I want units that meet this criteria, this criteria, this criteria, boom, and say apply, and those show up on the map. <laughs> and it gets rid of all the other ones, and that's what I was yeah. just going to say. That filtering 2.0 is it's just incredible because, like you said, I have a lot of the same features that I look at, uh, success rates, public land, uh, season dates, those sort of things, and you start putting that in, and, and units disappear from the map. And yeah. you're left with five or six units maybe that meet your criteria. Then you can click on each of those and get the nitty-gritty, the details about what the train is like. There's even pictures of most of the units um, so you can get an idea of, of what the train looks like. Uh, it's going to talk about trophy potential. It's going to, you know, all of those things, even for an over-the-counter hunt in or a general yeah. hunt in those states. 
And you can really narrow it down. And then with the information, the detailed information that they provide on each of the units, you can, I mean, you can pick your unit and know that it's going to be most closely matched to your expectations. And yeah. that's, and that's, <laughs> that's powerful. That's for me, that's probably my favorite part of, of a go hunt insider membership. Yeah. And you think about how much time we used to spend doing that back in the day. <laughs> it's ridiculous how much time you had to spend because you had to go to the game agency to get this information. You had to go to the land management agency for this. And and you, ha- you were looking all this stuff up and kind of holding your finger on this page and your other index finger over on this map. And it's like, even if you did have all the information, getting it right, uh, <laughs> it wasn't a guarantee I was going to get it all right. And yeah. So now in less than three minutes, I do a search, and there it is. And, and that, that just leads me down the path. It eliminates all the other things that don't meet my criteria. So for this person's question, uh, those are the priorities I put to it, and when the map says okay here's the remaining six or seven units those six or seven units are the one that i go into and i say all right which of these really intrigue me based on my hunting style and go from there yeah so and go hunt breaks that down i mean they tell you hey a mm-hmm. lot of this is winter grounds and the elk aren't going to be there unless they get an early snow and it pushes them down or they're going to say most of the elk are up at the top of the mountains and you're going to have to hike you know, 3,000 feet to, to get up to where the elk are because the trailheads and the roaded access is so limited. So, I mean, they do a great job of giving you an overview of the unit with some pretty good detailed information. Yeah. So, if you want to do that and save all this time, once again, promo code elk talk. Save gets what do they get them at Go Hunt if they become an insider member? A fifty dollar gift card, I think. Yeah, fifty dollars to the Go Hunt Gear Shop. Gear Shop, cool. Well, even a tightwad accountant like me can justify that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, uh, you know how how exciting it is for me today, Corey? It's April fifteenth, twenty twenty one, and normally this would be tax day. Like the, the IRS in Congress decided to prolong the agony till May 17th. I was going to say everything, but April 15th isn't all that exciting this year. Yeah. I have done this year, let's see, I've done my tax return, a bunch of my LLCs, my mom's tax return, my son's tax return, my mother-in-law's tax return. And I think I did one for a client. Uh, it's April 15th and I couldn't give two hoots what the tax <laughs> deadline is. Yeah, it, it hasn't even entered my mind that I got to go and do something and, uh, that I'm in a big rush. That's, that's cool. That's <laughs> great. Yeah, you, you, uh, must, you must be transferring out of being an accountant. You're going to have to quit using that as an excuse. I know. <clears throat> yeah, I, I quit. Everyone says, oh, must be nice to retire at your age. I'm like, I didn't retire. That implies I had enough money. I just, <laughs> I just quit. You know? That, I, Im- I, that I, implied you didn't want the stress and the headache. Right. And when you lay on the couch most of December barking like a seal because you got COVID, 
it quickly registers in your mind that, you know what, I only have so many hunting years ahead of me. Heck with these tax returns. I'll, I'll die in poverty before I'm going to give up any more of my days stressing about that stuff. So, <laughs> oh, well. I just oh, I, I wrote down the date here on this set of notes, and I kept looking at it. I'm like, April 15th, April 15th. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Most CPAs have pulled their last three hairs out of the side of their head by now. So, Yep. Well, congratulations oh. on your... Yeah. Quitting. I'm quitting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is yeah. nice. I know it's yeah. trying to do two things or ten things at once. It just adds to the stress level. So when you can eliminate one of those pretty major pieces and components out of your schedule, it yeah. takes a little load of that stress off. Yeah. Um, another couple people asked this question and they, they were directed at you because it was mostly archery hunting. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say it was negative. Uh, no. Huh? <laughs> uh, they, the, I'll summarize these emails this way by saying, how important is it to get away from roads in archery season compared to rifle season? Is it that big of a factor for you? Like, I try to get away from them in rifle season or do you just say, Hey, the elk are going to be where they can satisfy their need in September roads or no roads. Yeah. I think, you know, that goes back to your question and, and your information on the needs and the seasons, uh, that need for sanctuary, I think is more prevalent for sure during the post rut, you know, out of, out yeah. of all the seasons, sanctuary during the post rut is, is the most important uh, yeah. or the highest priority need. So I think that it's not as important during archery season. Uh, I know you've mentioned the study they did in the Starkey Experimental Forest in Oregon that the elk preferred a certain distance away from roads. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, just common sense would say elk aren't going to be hanging out right alongside of a, a road and the more busy the road is, you know, the less likely they're going to be hanging out there. So all those mm-hmm. things taken into consideration, I would say no elk are not as affected by roads during archery as they are during rifle. Yeah. Okay. That was kind of, if, if the question was directed at me, which the person's very smart to not direct an <laughs> archery question at me, uh, that's probably the way I would have, generally answered it it's i've i've had way better luck in roaded areas in archery season than i have in rifle season yeah uh, just so when you think about what their needs are some of those roaded areas are roaded because of logging or thinning and that creates some really good feed and the yep. cows are looking for the best feed all the time and sometimes that's where they're going to be and uh I'm not advocating for more roads everywhere just for that purpose. Uh, But it is, there are times where people drive past elk because they want to get eight miles back from the trailhead. Yep. Well, don't walk past elk to find (laughs) other, (laughs) don't walk past elk to find other hunters. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Marcus, Marcus in our office calls it the the Randy Newberg reverse effect. That he says he's now seeing more elk within a mile of a road or trailhead than he used to because 
I'm telling everybody to go way back in there. <laughs> and they're scaring all the elk closer to the road. Uh, we joke about it. I don't. Uh, I think that's uh, more of a joke than it is reality. But the point of that is, is, you know, find out where the elk are going to satisfy their need at that time of year. And if there's roads, there's roads. If the roads are closed and the elk are there, they're there for a reason. It's satisfying that need. So. Yep. But you got any, uh, oh, I meant to ask you this. You know, last year we heard about all these broken bulls that had broken antlers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you seeing that in the shed hunting, antler, horn hunting? You know, we don't, Idaho is just one of those states that, you know, it's similar to Montana and Wyoming and, and those mountain elk just aren't as affected by drought, which I think is what had a big effect on the, a lot of the antlers getting broken last year, and, and we're talking most of what I saw was was in desert-type units, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, uh, places mm-hmm. where the drought did affect their antler growth and did affect the, the density of the antlers through the nutrition that they got. Uh, but here, you know, they, they've got moisture. The elk don't go without moisture. Even their feed has moisture on a dry year uh, just because of, of where we live and the snow you know, that we rely on for spring runoff uh, contributes to the the moisture they need throughout the year. So I haven't noticed it in any of my shed hunting. I don't think anything that I've picked up has been broken at all other than maybe a chip off of a tip from fighting or something, but no broken tines, no broken beams or anything. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I hope that this year I find some of those bulls that got passed on last year because someone said, ah, that antler's broke. I'm going to pass on him. Yep. <laughs> maybe maybe there's a bunch of bulls that got to be an extra year older on account of that. There might be a few. So, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Are there any uh, so. application deadlines coming up? Uh, let's see. Nevada, May 10th is uh, coming up for all species. Um, if you're into moose, goat, and sheep, uh, end of April, 1st of May for, uh, moose, goat, and sheep in Idaho and Montana, Oregon, all species, what, May 15th, I think think it is. And then you guys down in Idaho, you have your controlled hunt deadline for elk, deer, and antelope is, uh, June 5th, 5th, I think, yeah. So, a few states but, left. Yeah, there's a few left. Yeah, we, did you notice how many emails we got when the <laughs> when the the flurry of emails we got when the Arizona tags came out? Yep. Whoa. Some guy is like, sounds like Montana must have uh, released their results here in the last day or two because yeah, seen a lot of chatter, a lot yep. of chatter on that. Yeah. Some guy is like I had. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how many points I had, but it rhymes rhymes with hero. (laughs) And I drew this tag in this unit. I'm like, you know what? Good for you. You you drew a good tag. But he drew one of the late archery November uh, archery tags. So those are a lot easier to draw. So it doesn't surprise me too much. Uh, But... So many questions. I have the tag for this unit. What would you do? <laughs> um, the, the, the answer is depends, depends, depends. depends, yeah. depends. Mm. 
So and it's, such, and a, it's, it's an, such a loaded question, and, yeah. and maybe that's something you know. With when people ask us these questions, the more details you can provide, the more information you can provide, the better we're going to be able to answer it. Because if somebody just says, "I'm thinking about going hunting in Colorado in the next five years," what unit should I look at? Yeah, <laughs> I mean the whole Hello? state. They they all have elk, yeah. so look at all of them. Right. If they say I want to go hunting this fall, I don't have time to make a scouting trip out there. Um, what unit should I go hunting? Here's my physical limitations. Here's how many days I have. At least we're able to narrow it down and give them. You know, we're not going to say, "Hey, go to unit X." We're going to say, "I would look at." these factors, figure out what the, the bull to cow ratio is, what the success rate is, and narrow it down that way, uh, giving him some information, you know, possibly about certain units that might be steep and rugged or something like that. But we, uh, Randy and I just aren't able to give specifics, and and hopefully that makes sense. You know, part of it's the, the ethics of hunting that we talked about at the beginning of this, that hunting areas yeah. and shed hunting areas are kind of sacred and the other thing is you've got to realize that, that with our platforms, if we started telling people, you know, giving them ideas of where to go, everybody would hate us. Even the people that yeah. we give the idea to because we're <laughs> going to give the same information to everybody else. And so I think it's yeah. so much more valuable to share the, the information to look for to make that decision than to share the information right. of where to go. That way, hunters are able to find specifically what fits them and their style and they're able to do that research and go and find their own area. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> we get an awful lot of criticism for even being vague. Yeah. Why are you why are you giving this information? It took me 31 years to learn how to do that. Well, we're here to try lower hurdles. And then the flip side of it, it, I've had people ask me for GPS coordinates, unit numbers, trailheads. I mean, precision stuff and when i say you know i have a standard answer out of respect to other applicants and other hunters i don't provide that information and they've contacted my sponsors yeah i'm like <laughs> really <laughs> I okay i can't believe you sponsor this guy i can't believe you partner with him he's he's yeah. worthless don't tell me right <laughs> where to hunt yeah he won't give me those gps coordinates or where that dead bull was laying <laughs> so, so. But, oh, well, it just, you know, we've been at it long enough and we we try our best to use discretion and walk that fine line of what's helpful information and what helps people do it themselves, get over the hurdles and, and learn how rather than learn where. So, but. That's yeah, a whole, it's the whole, you know, give a man a fish and you feed him for a meal and teach him how to do it and feed him for a life. And that's, I yeah. think, the same same principle here. Yep. Yep. So, well, Corey, before I divert into another Facebook uh, <laughs> tangent, I think we're probably going to let the audience go because I'm, I, I'm, uh, I've now had enough time to, I don't know if it's cool down or heat up. Uh, I'm about ready to go do another live. Tomorrow morning is going to be the seventh, you know, the one week anniversary. I definitely got to do another live event tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm going to do it yeah. on Instagram again. Are you? See. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, you blankety blank. No, I'm not going to do that. But I did get a little <laughs> bit out, out in the weeds a little bit. My wife listened to it. She's like, I told you not to say those kind of things. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Sometimes it just slips out. And when you're live, you know, it's not like I can say, hey, everybody, uh, let's roll that back. There's not like a 10-second delay in what comes out of my mouth and what hits the live Instagram feed. Yep. So I just had to apologize to my wife. You know, I, I know you don't like it when I say stuff like that, but it just happened. So, uh, oh, No, well. it's uh, frustrating. You know, when you're trying to run a business, it's one thing when you're just out there for the social aspect of it. When you're trying to yeah. run a business off of a platform and that platform gets hacked, it's yeah, it's a real But the pain. good part is I talked to my five largest sponsors about all this, and they all said, you know what, Randy, you probably reach them in your videos and your podcasts everywhere else. Do a like a story of how this is evolving and what's happening. And if you want to leave Facebook, we're on board with you, man. We're <laughs> we're tired of that outfit also. So I I don't know that my platform or my world is gonna travel too much further down the path of Facebook. Yeah, which is just fine because that's kind of I I got drawn into Facebook kicking and screaming anyhow. So <laughs> it's like now people are going to say Newberg, you just had some people hack your channel so that you could use it as yeah, an exactly. excuse to get off of Facebook. <laughs> Pieces are all coming together here. The agency that runs your Facebook <laughs> is uh, in charge of it. Has all the information. I, yeah, Randy's Randy's the guy behind the curtain on this one. <laughs> oh, I all wish that was the case. All at poor Facebook's expense. Yeah. Well, I say we let them go, Corey. And but before we do, let's remind them that uh, they should become members of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Because if you are, I promise you, you're going to shoot more elk this year. Yep, guaranteed, uh, guaranteed. Money yeah, back, guarantee. You, Randy's yeah. money back. Money, not not money the RMF membership, but no. Just <laughs> you can take that to the bank. You're going to feel good about what you did. You're going to look at all this access you help create, which lowers hunter densities. You know, everyone's complaining that it's too crowded on public land. Well, we need more access. Yep. That's what we need, and you can help with that. So rmef.org, go sign up, or. If you're if you're in San yeah. Antonio, Texas this weekend, RMEF is going oh, to be yeah. on site at the Total Archery Challenge, mm-hmm. and yeah. I will be there as well. So, Oh, you will? Yeah. Come by the you- RMEF booth. I'll be in the booth on Saturday, and then uh, we'll be participating in the RMEF after party uh, Saturday mm-hmm. night and doing a little Q&A and, and uh, elk calling seminar. So. Cool. You know what my crew asked? They said, next time you talk to Corey, ask him if he'd do this. We're having an argument in the office here over who's the best elk caller. So they're wanting to know if you come to Montana for the Big Sky RMEF Total Archery Challenge, if you judge our office elk calling contest. Wow. Yeah, that's that's YouTube content right there. (laughs) I will judge it if somebody Uh, records it. Okay. I'll tell them that. Yep. They'll, they'll be all calling up Kurt over at Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. Hey, <laughs> cut a little hole in Randy's reeds and stuff. Send him some bum gear or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, that man. would be fun. 
Oh, we put that on the comedy channel. Yep. Put that on my Facebook page. There you go. That'll yeah. that'll get thirteen thousand dollars of revenue. <laughs> I'll split it with you if you can figure <laughs> okay. that out. Oh <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Corey. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, thank you. We'll gather again next week. Sounds great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, folks. <laughs>